The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focus summary of chapters 3 and 4. The next morning, Raskolnikov wakes up irritable and ill-tempered, and looks around with hatred at his poverty-stricken cupboard of a room. He is glad, however, to have escaped society, like a tortoise in its shell, and even the appearance of the servant girl Nastasia makes him writhe with nervous irritation. His condition, we are told, is similar to that of monomaniacs entirely concentrated on one thing. Nastasia serves him tea, offers to bring him some soup, warns him that the landlady intends to complain about his delinquent rent payments to the police, and questions him about why he just lies there like a sack and does nothing. He responds, sullenly and haltingly, that he is doing work, that he is thinking. He complains of how little is to be made by giving lessons, and she is frightened when he says, strangely and firmly, that he wants a fortune all at once. Nastasia then recalls that the postman had brought Raskolnikov a letter, and when she brings it to him, he turns pale as a strange feeling stabs at his heart. He tells her to leave him alone, and then, gazing with fondness on the handwriting of the one who taught him to read and write, he lifts the envelope to his lips and kisses it. His mother apologizes for her months of silence, saying what a grief it was to her to learn that he had given up the university and his work, and how impossible it had been for her to send him money out of her pension. She reminds him how she and his sister Dunya love him, saying he is their all, their one hope, their stay. She explains why she ignored him when he wrote to ask whether Dunya was, as he had heard, putting up with a great deal from her employers, the Svidrigailovs. Because she had not known the whole truth, because Dunya had taken an advance on her salary that she couldn't repay, because, had she said something, she was sure Raskolnikov would have thrown up everything and come to them, they deceived him. It was indeed true. Mr. Svidrigailov had conceived a passion for Dunya, and, probably ashamed at himself for the betrayal of his family, sought to conceal his feelings under a show of rudeness and contempt. Finally, Mr. Svidrigailov's wife, Marfa Petrovna, heard her husband imploring Dunya in the garden. She proceeded to strike Dunya, shout at her, and pack her off in a peasant's cart. Dunya, Raskolnikov's mother says, is an angel. She had borne Svidrigailov's mistreatment to avoid a scandal, endured the shame of Marfa Petrovna's cruelty, forbade her mother to tell Raskolnikov of her troubles, and all the while concealed her own suffering while offering her mother comfort. Later, Svidrigailov repented and offered his wife proof of Dunya's innocence, after which she begged Dunya's forgiveness and spent days going door to door throughout the town, endeavoring to restore Dunya's reputation among its people. Shortly after that, Raskolnikov's mother says, a well-to-do counselor named Pyotr Petrovich Luzhin asked to make Dunya's acquaintance, and the day after their introduction, 
courteously made an offer and begged for a speedy and decided answer. She and Dunya spent the next day, it seems, talking themselves into consent. It all seemed so quick and unexpected, but he is a busy man. He is forty-five, but he might still be thought to be attractive. He seems morose and conceited, but he is a respectable and presentable man. He's not a man of great education, but he seems clever. There is no great love on either side, but Dunya is an angel, and she will make it her duty to please him. He did state abruptly that he had made up his mind to marry a girl of good reputation who had experienced poverty so that she would look upon him as a benefactor, but the idea seemed to have just slipped out. He said it politely, and he tried afterwards to smooth it over. Dunya paced and prayed all night, and in the morning said she had decided to accept his proposal. Raskolnikov's mother warns him against making hasty judgments and forming prejudices, as is his way, and she primes him to think favorably of Luzhin. She says that he is on his way to Petersburg, where he plans to open a legal bureau, and that she and Dunya have already begun hinting that Rodia might work for him. She has been cautious to make it seem delusion like his own decision. She is cautious to make sure Rodia regards it as earned by his own talent and work. But she and Dunya see this as a chance for Rodia's future to be marked out and assured. Whether from passive aggressiveness or an effort to forestall Rodia's disapproval, she plays down the indignities she has suffered at Lusian's hand. That, for example, he has not invited her to live with them, and that, poor as they are, they are being made to pay for their own journey to Petersburg. She reminds Raskolnikov meaningfully that Dunya is an angel, that marrying Lusian means she will see her brother again, and that she would do it for that reason alone, and that he must love Dunya, for she loves him more than she loves herself. At first, while he reads the letter, Raskolnikov's face is wet with tears. But when he finishes it, a wrathful, malignant smile is on his lips. He forgets his dread of meeting anyone, he craves for space, and he hastens out onto the streets, muttering and speaking to himself, giving passers-by the impression that he is drunk. Raskolnikov's unhesitating response to the letter is, Never such a marriage while I am alive, and Mr. Lusion be damned. He says to himself that he sees all. Dunya is to marry an impressive man with two government posts who has already made his fortune, and who seems kind. He scorns his mother for her disingenuousness and for sacrificing her daughter to her son. Acknowledging the truth that to know a man takes time and care, he nevertheless feels unmistaken about his judgment of Lusian. After all, he seems kind. That seems tells all. He sent his bride and her mother to Petersburg in a peasant's cart, and he has made it clear that Dunya's mother is not to live with them. Raskolnikov bitterly likens the whole relationship to a transaction, 
and he says that the businessman has got the better bargain in it. He mocks his mother's Schiller-esque heart, her romantic determination to hope for the best, see nothing wrong, and refuse to face the truth. He says to himself that this is all unsurprising from his mother, but that he did not expect it of Dunya. He does not understand how she could accept a man who propounds a theory of the superiority of destitute wives in the first interview, how she could barter her soul for comfort, how she could consent to be a legal concubine. Then, he says it is clear, Dunya is selling herself for him, bringing freedom, peace, and conscience to the market. He declares that as long as he lives, he won't accept the sacrifice. Then he mocks his own gesture, recognizing that he has no right and no ability to prevent it. He has vowed to devote his life to them, but it has always been only words. Something must be done now, and he can do nothing. He tortures himself with questions about what will become of his mother and sister, finding a sort of enjoyment in it. His anguish had begun long ago, had matured and concentrated, and had taken the form of a frenzied and fantastic question. His mother's letter had made it clear that he must stop worrying over unsolved questions and do something at once, or give up all claim to life and love. Marmaladov's question do you understand what it means when you have absolutely nowhere to turn, comes upon him again, as does another recurring thought, once a mere dream, now taking on a menacing and unfamiliar shape. It is accompanied by a hammering in his head and darkness in his eyes. As he walks along the boulevard, he sees a woman walking twenty paces in front of him, and notices that there is something very strange about her. She is a pretty girl, of no more than fifteen. Her clothes are torn and awry, and she walks unsteadily, staggering from side to side. Upon reaching her, he finds her sunk back on a seat with eyes closed, and sees, to his shock, that she is completely drunk. On the further side of the boulevard, he sees a plump, thickly set gentleman watching the girl and concludes that he had followed her, and would have liked to approach her with some object of his own, had not Raskolnikov gotten in his way. He walks towards the gentleman, clenching his fists, laughing, and spluttering with rage, and tells this Svidrigailov to go away. The man raises his cane in defense, and at that moment a police constable seizes him from behind, and asks him sternly who he is and what he wants. Raskolnikov takes the policeman by the hand, draws him toward the seat, and interprets for him the scene at hand. The girl is not a professional. She had been given drink and deceived. She has been dressed by a man's hands. The dandy following her is eager to get a hold of her in this state. He says they must keep her out of that man's hands and get her home and he gives the policeman twenty kopecks to pay for a cab. The policeman sees it all in a flash, and laments the vice one sees nowadays. He turns to her with compassion, and offers to take her home himself. 
but she simply waves him away. Then something seems to sting Raskolnikov, and a feeling of revulsion comes over him. He murmurs to himself angrily that it is nothing to him, that they can devour each other alive, that he had no right to help, and that the money wasn't even his. And yet he feels wretched. He envisions a terrible future for the girl, imagining her beaten by her mother, slipping out on the sly, frequenting the taverns, and landing in the hospital. He connects her fate in his mind to that of Sonia and of his own Dunya, imagining them among the coldly calculated percentage of girls who go to the devil. He suddenly wonders to himself why he had come out in the first place, and recalls that he had intended to go to one of his few school friends, Razumihin. Razumihin was so good-natured and festive that it was impossible not to be on good terms with him. He too had been required to give up the university, and Raskolnikov had not seen him for four months, aside from one time when they passed in the street, and Raskolnikov saw him and turned away, hoping not to be observed. The next of my posts was called My Struggle. I struggled with my commentary this week, and I think that's a good thing. Here, in essence, is what happened to me. When I read the story of Katerina Ivanovna and Marmoladov in Chapter 2, I was moved to deep feelings of sympathy. Sympathy, despite the fact that Marmoladov drank away the little money he had and abandoned his family to sickness and starvation. Sympathy, despite the fact that Katerina Ivanovna beat her children and drove her stepdaughter into prostitution. Since we are also inhabiting what seems to be a devious criminal mind, I wondered, will Dostoevsky ask me to sympathize with him, too? I began to feel guarded, pensive, and troubled. I saw it and tried to write an answer to those troubles. But my thoughts were a mess, and after working for hours on that answer, I knew it had to be discarded. I think the whole problem was that I was trying to formulate answers when I should instead have been trying to clarify my questions. So that is what I will try to do now. What does Dostoevsky want me to feel for Marmoladov and for Katerina Ivanovna? Does he want me just to understand that there is more to their stories than would meet the eyes of the callous tavern-goers? If so, what is the goal of that understanding? Does he want me to feel clarity, empathy, forgiveness? Is it possible to be clear without being empathetic, empathetic without being forgiving? Is there a cautionary tale in their stories? Or is his goal something vastly different from the conventional tales of hero and villain with which I am accustomed? What is to be accomplished by inhabiting the thoughts of a plotting criminal? Is Dostoevsky presenting his view of the nature of evil? Does he regard Raskolnikov as evil at all? How do we benefit from witnessing the machinations of Raskolnikov's mind? Are we gaining insight into a type? Are we learning about the criminal mind per se? 
does Dostoevsky see this character as some sort of reductio ad absurdum of the dangerous tendencies that we can uncover in our own souls? I don't raise these as questions for us to discuss and answer in the group, but rather as examples of the questions that the novel prompts me to ponder. They are complex, weighty, and hugely consequential questions, and I'm glad this novel raises them, without even quite yet understanding how it does. And whether or not I agree with his outlook, to the extent that Dostoevsky addresses them, I will be grateful to have been exposed to the depth of his insight. And I am grateful to inhabit a world where questions of what to think and how to live seem to take on such a vital and stirring importance. The next of my posts was called A Fortune All at Once. Raskolnikov tells Nastasia ominously that he wants a fortune all at once. This chapter makes Visceral one of the powerful incitements to that desire. In Chapter 2, our hearts were torn by the silent sacrifice of Sonia, who bore the disgrace of the yellow ticket so that she might lay a few rubles on the table. Katerina Ivanovna kisses her feet. Marmeladov is tortured with regret. And yet, they continue, cruelly, to take. Raskolnikov comments scornfully, Hooray for Sonia! What a mine they've dug there! And they're making the most of it! Yes, they are making the most of it! They've wept over it and grown used to it. In Chapter 3, Raskolnikov's mother writes to him of his sister Dunya's fortuitous engagement to the wealthy government official Luzhin. It is not difficult for us to read between the lines of her letter that this is to be a marriage of convenience. But one of the things I loved most about Chapter 4 is that while I had felt self-satisfied that I could see between the lines— I could not see with the penetrating vision of Raskolnikov or of Dostoevsky. That is not to say that his interpretations, much less his conclusions and resolutions, are sound, but merely to say that where some novels would have us glance beneath the surface, Dostoevsky asks us to gaze with an intensity of focus. In Chapter 3, I thought, I see what's going on. In Chapter 4, I thought, well, I didn't see that. What Raskolnikov sees is his sister, like Sonia, being traded on the market. Only worse, because with Sonia it was a matter of survival, whereas with Dunya it is a bargain for luxuries. She is selling her soul, bartering her moral freedom for comfort, consenting to become a legal concubine. He sees his mother's unconscionable and evasive sacrifice of her daughter to her son. For her Rodia, precious Rodia, her firstborn, she will sell Dunya into a life of bitterness, misery, curses, and tears hidden from all the world. And she will do it by closing her eyes to the reality, embracing a romantic, Schiller-esque vision of Lusion as their savior, and refusing to face the truth. He sees that his sister, who he believes would never have consented to this, even had Lusion been of unalloyed gold or one huge diamond, is doing so for him. For her brother and her mother, 
she overcomes her moral feeling, persuades herself that she is doing good, and endures the bitter ascent to Golgotha, the path of Christ to his crucifixion. He reflects on his mother's words, imploring him to love his sister because she loves him more than she loves herself, on her repeated references to Dunya as an angel, and on her reminder that Dunya can put up with a great deal. He knows this all very well, he thinks. He has thought of nothing else for the last two and a half years. I was not completely clear whether we were supposed to know what it is that he has pondered all that time. Please tell me if you are. Was it simply that he was living off of them as a student? But it seemed clear that something has made him suffer a tortured and regretful debt to her. He thinks to himself that he was to have prevented this, to have devoted himself to them, to have finished his studies and obtained a post. Instead, he's done nothing. He is doing nothing. He is living off them. He must do something, do it at once, and do it quickly. He declares bitterly that he will not accept Dunya's sacrifice. And then, if this were not all resonant enough, yet another version of such a sacrifice manifests itself before him on the street. A young girl, drunk and disheveled, appearing to have been given drink and deceived somewhere, is leered at by a man eager to get a hold of her in this state for himself. Raskolnikov asks the assistance of the policeman and offers again what little money he has to keep her out of that man's hands and to get her safely home. He envisions her terrible fate and sees it as connected to that of Sonia and of Dunya. Despite all this, he still experiences a wave of spiteful regret that he interfered, thinking to himself that it has nothing to do with him, that he has no right to help, that they should all be allowed to devour each other alive. This theme of bitter contempt for the bartering of women's souls gives insight into Raskolnikov's compulsion to gain a fortune all at once. While seeming still, very, very far from a wholesale explanation. And the last of my posts to the Facebook group was one favorite. I was struck by this passage, quote, That's as it should be, they tell us. A certain percentage, they tell us, must every year go that way, to the devil, I suppose, so that the rest may remain chaste and not be interfered with. A percentage. What splendid words they have. They are so scientific, so consolatory. Once you've said percentage, there's nothing more to worry about. Unquote. In taking a scientific, sociological, or statistical perspective on issues, we can all run the danger of becoming detached from the real human suffering from which we are abstracting away. When I encounter that danger, I will remember these words. It can be especially difficult, as Raskolnikov also identifies, to maintain a real human connection to suffering in regard to issues that are not our own. But what, he thinks, if Dunya were one of the percentage? Reading this, I experience that sort of tenuous, intangible connection that is strangely possible before you are even able to call the connection you're making to your conscious mind. 
I knew it was something from the Shadow University by Alan Charles Kors. I found it. Quote, Most of us sadly develop the capacity to treat the suffering, oppression, or legal inequality of individuals or groups whom we see as obstacles to our own goals or visions, or even with whom we merely feel little affinity, as abstractions or exaggerations without concrete human immediacy. Unquote. We can count on Dostoevsky to turn those abstractions into a gut-wrenching reality. If you have a moment, I'd love you to share some of your favorites in the Facebook group, too.